Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome back to the program Joseph Bouchard. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Joseph, for the people meeting you for the first time, take a second and just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background. Well, thank you. It's great to be back. So I'm a contributor with uh, Young Voices. I've written on Latin American politics for the last few years. Uh, and I'm also studying a master's program in international affairs at Carleton University here in Canada, where I'm, where I'm originally from. So I, I'm looking at an article that you penned, and it's fascinating because I've seen what, what you're describing here. The title says, El Salvador's dictator is a darling of the American right. He shouldn't be. And by gosh, I have seen a lot of people sharing this on Twitter and other places in social media. Look at this guy. He put all of these you know, dangerous gang members and whatnot in, in prison. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands. And uh, I guess to start with, the situation must have been pretty bad for someone who, who I, as you point out, laughingly calls himself you know, the world's coolest dictator um, to come to power in the first place. What was it that led to this person's... Uh, attainment of of the presidency of El Salvador. Sure. So he was elected in 2019 after very successful runs as mayor of two big cities in El Salvador. Well, obviously 6.5 million uh, people in the country, but still big cities in in comparison in Central America. And he basically ran on uh, lowering crime, which he did while he was mayor, cut uh, crime rates by more than half in his in his town. Um, and lowering corruption, he left the two big parties in El Salvador and ran as an independent. And his party was actually banned by the Supreme Court. So he ran on um, basically these two parties are corrupt. The system is corrupt. Um, I will face these institutions and reframe them in a way that's more for the people of El Salvador. And right when he got to work uh, as president, uh, when he won over 55% of the vote, he um, started implementing a uh, harsh security program because El Salvador has, when he started, had an over 100 uh, per 100,000 homicide rate, which is the highest in the world. Um, in one weekend when he was president, over 80 people got murdered. Um, and he basically used that to justify very harsh security policies, put in about 2% of the adult population in jail, which is way more than the United States, by the way. Uh, people often talk about the U.S., but the U.S. is 0.3%. Uh, wow. So more than eight times the rate of the U.S. Um, and as a result of that, uh, well, at least he claims the homicide rate went down to 78 uh which is less than 10% of what it was before in a four-year period. But what people don't say, unfortunately, is that um, it's not really a result of these policies. It's more so that he secretly negotiated deals with the MS-13, a very infamous gang in the United States, which originates from El Salvador, to basically say, we will put rival gangs in jail in exchange for the MS-13 not killing anybody. And it seems like it's worked, even though there's been some incidents, uh, the the homicide rate is way down and people praise him for it. And people want to adopt his policies, uh, including the United States, which is very worrying. Now, you mentioned that uh, the American political right, there are some folks there who very openly like, yes, this is the kind of guy that we need. Um, What is it that that draws them to him? Is it the fact he's getting results or is there there's something else going on there? 
I think it's a bit of two things. He is getting results, at least the data shows, uh, even though, as I mentioned, it's not for his actual policies, but rather for secret deals and corruption. Um, so that definitely is appealing because North America, especially the U.S., is going through a, a huge problem uh, with homicide rates in big cities like St. Louis, Chicago, New Orleans, homicide rates comparable to big cities in Latin America, which have some of the highest homicide rates in the world. So it can be pretty uh, appealing, but I also think his appeal comes from his image and his antics, similarly to a lot of far-right figures in the U.S. where they are very active on social media, on Twitter. Um, he's a big Bitcoin uh, enthusiast, so he, he plays to that side. Uh, he was on Tucker Carlson's show, um, and he, he talks up his relationship with Donald Trump while he was president. So he's he's tried to sort of play uh, that role of uh, politically incorrect and uh, friends with people in the far right, which is appealing to a lot of people in the U.S., well, and it, it sounds like there are some very interesting parallels, and I'm I'm not trying to say that you know, yes, our murder rate is off the charts, but we have seen the murder rate come up considerably. We see um, what I'm sure to to some people could could be described as a two tiered system of justice, where hmm. um, rioters and and Antifa types seem to get a, a pass or are bailed out or their charges reduced, but you know the guys who uh, crossed the barriers in uh, January 6th, man, they're looking at you know a decade or more in prison for what they did. And hmm. I can see where people might gravitate towards, we need some very serious solutions. Talk to me about the downside of when, when the guy on horseback comes riding in with an iron fist to set things right. What's the downside of that? Well, you don't think it's going to target you until it does. And the truth is, a lot of the people he's put in jail are, have not been proven or shown to be any kind of criminal uh you know he's put over 150,000 people in jail over a two-year period uh as i said two percent of population and most of them haven't gone to trial so what he did was he suspended the constitution for over two months while he was jailing massive amounts of people including many of them in a 40,000 people prison which is the biggest in the world um where people are crammed 12 people in the same cell um and they don't have uh rights to an attorney or trial and he's even threatened to take away food and water for the people he's put in jail and a lot of them are not uh, proven to be associated with ms-13 or any of the big gangs um and they're awaiting trial and uh in response to critics um on both sides of the aisle um critic critiquing his policies he's uh basically pursued them as well. So one of the biggest newspapers in the country uh, ran an investigation to, to detail his secret deals with the MS-13, and uh, he banned uh, them and started investigating them for money laundering that were completely mocked up charges. Um, even the U.S. government uh, is investigating him for these deals, and he's calling them you know, fake news and, and uh, basically calling anybody who disagrees with him uh on the side of the criminals which is not that's not accurate and so i would say sure his policies might seem to work but you 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 have to think that policies that respect rule of law and human rights are also able to perform well without sacrificing your entire 
uh, democracy as a result. Boy, that is the test right there of, you know, the statesman versus the politician. You know, the statesman will do the right thing even when it's inconvenient or it's difficult or unpopular. Um, but uh, the politician can always find a reason to, you know, justify whatever's being done. And yeah, we can stretch the rules here. I, I love a point you made in your article about how rather than restoring the rule of law, uh, Bukele has created what amounts to the strongest gang. Basically, he just built a bigger, stronger gang, struck deals with uh, the other big gang, MS-13. And that uh, that doesn't say much for, okay, but how does that play out for the average person? The rule of law is supposed to protect everybody equally, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and what's even sadder is that it seems like uh, population has bought into this 90% approval rating, uh, according to a recent that trustable poll polls, some polls have him even higher. Uh, and he's running for reelection next year. And it seems like it's going to be uncontested. Uh, and by the way, that's, that was unconstitutional before he came to power. He extended his own powers, uh, changed the constitution to allow himself to run. And then, uh, people in the Supreme court who disagreed, he just fired um so to people who say that this isn't endangering democracy or that this is justified i would say well just wait until um until your interests are not represented anymore and then you'll see how he reacts sounds like uh, they've solved some problems at the expense of creating new and in, in mm. perhaps even bigger problems um tell me we've got about one minute left here but uh, joseph what is the lesson that uh, we in the united states should take from what's happening in el salvador so that we don't uh, we don't make similar mistakes sure uh problems are problems and obviously crises require um bold measures but you should not sacrifice your liberties and democracy as a result. And it's easier to do than people think, especially if you're scared. You know, if your murder rate is, you know, through the mm -hmm. roof, um, you might be tempted to embrace things that will, well, there's a short-term um, solution. But uh, again, the statesman, the economist, they're, they're looking at what are the unintended consequences that might come along with this, as opposed to the politician who's just like, will it keep me in power? Will it get me reelected? Great. <laughs> Let's run with it. Again, and it's understandable. Obviously, you know, people are scared, but uh, you have to think more rationally and uh, stop and think about the implications of what you're doing. Here, here. Again, we're talking with uh, Joseph Bouchard. He is a freelance journalist covering geopolitics in Latin America. He's a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Joseph, for people who want to follow you, tell them where they can find you on social media. Sure. Find me on Twitter at GeopolWonk. Um, looking forward to you reading my articles and thank you for engaging with me. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're very happy to welcome Eric Suarez aboard. This is his first time on Moving Forward. And Eric, as a Young Voices contributor, first of all, let me congratulate you for uh, for landing that gig. But tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do. Thank you, Brian. Uh, thank you for the invite again. My Well, my name is Eric. I, go, um, I graduated from Penn State not long ago for international relations and economics. I was originally born in Venezuela. And due to the regime and, and the high violence and the political persecution over there, my family decided to move to Peru, where I finished high school. And I also experienced firsthand the waves of Venezuelan immigration. 
And all of those experiences just um, push me into the current things that I'm doing right now, which is focusing a lot on Latin America. I write a lot about Latin America, but I also try to uh, be part of organizations that promote uh, liberty values in the region. So. That's what I'm currently doing right now. Wonderful. I'm, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for realclearworld.com about the Biden administration's bad bet on Venezuelan oil. And I'll admit, I really, I know that the American oil and gas industry has actually kind of been under, uh, under the boot of the Biden administration from the day he took office. And so we, we don't have a lot of uh, domestic uh, energy robustness, but um, talk to me about the deal that he has worked out with Venezuela. Venezuela. Um, I, I don't think that I really was, was that aware of it. it. It is very dangerous. It's a very dangerous deal. We know that Venezuela has been a hostile uh, member in the region against the United States. Uh, there's no close, friendly relations. And in the last few years under the Trump administration, Obama administration, and previous administrations under Bush, uh, the socialist regime has been very hostile towards the U.S. And there's no guarantee that because the deals that Biden is doing right now that will change in the foreseeable future. And depending um, on oil from Venezuela uh, might be a bad bet, as I mentioned in the article, for those reasons. And some of the deals that are going on right now uh, focus on giving Venezuela the benefit of the doubt. Um, most of the sanctions imposed on the oil sector in Venezuela have been imposed to combat the human rights abuses and the blatant corruption in the country. And Biden is betting on opening the economy to benefit from the oil from Venezuela due to the shortage, the global shortage of oil that we're living right now, but also as a strategy of foreign policy to try to take, bring Venezuela away from those practices, which it will fail in the end. So I, my understanding is Venezuela, at least at one time, was very much um, in the forefront of oil and gas production. In other words, a very resource-rich country. Um, I know that uh, there have been a number of years of, uh, of socialist government that have really done some damaging things to the economy. Has the oil and gas industry in Venezuela suffered also? Yes. The, well, the socialist uh, policies destroyed all the industry in Venezuela, including our most important resource industry, which is oil and gas. Um, Venezuela went from producing millions of barrels a day to producing not even half of that amount nowadays. And the industry and the, and the infrastructure has been severely damaged as well, to the point that most of Venezuelan oil right now is being um, extracted by Iranian, by the Iranian government and Iranian um, it's uh, by Iranian people. So that's very dangerous because uh, also it adds another layer to the issue, which is the involvement of Iran and Venezuela, oil being extracted by Iran and giving more uh, economic incentives to the enemies of the United States. And well, that adds another layer to the issue. Venezuela is a very complicated country in the region. There's many issues that interlap and Biden, promoting or benefiting, uh, giving the benefit of the doubt to Venezuela poses a greater risk that he, I believe he can imagine. Wow.
I mean, you you do a very good job in your article of connecting all the dots that have come together to, to really um, dramatically impact America's economy. And I mean, this includes the restrictions on Russian oil that many Western allies have joined in. Um, there, there, are, there are a lot of things that are impacting the flow of gas and oil around the world. And so making a deal like this, while on the surface might seem like, well, you know, there's another option. As you mentioned, Venezuela has one of the biggest oil reserves in the world. But it sounds like some of the devil is in the details of this agreement and could very much come back to bite us in the long term. It is. And, it, and it's very it's very difficult because, as I mentioned before, Venezuela is not a safe bet. Uh, the practices of the Venezuelan regime will come back. And most of the deals made by the Biden administration are dependent on Venezuela following their side of the pact. So we are um, watching upcoming elections um, soon. Uh, which are already promising to be very un anti-democratic. Uh, some political candidates have already been persecuted, and I don't. And I see in the foreseeable future that this relationship that the Biden administration was trying to forge with Venezuela will soon collapse, and these deals um, will have to backtrack. And very recently, after I published this article, I saw that some U.S. representatives are trying to push for reducing even more oil sanctions on Venezuela, which is doubling down on this bet. And I think it's going to cause even more problems uh, in the future for the U.S. How will this affect um the, the Latin American region in, in terms of if America is making deals with uh, with um, Venezuela and it's, it's Maduro, right? He's he's the uh, the current leader. Um, is this is this going to destabilize other nations around Venezuela? I think that um, making these deals and empowering Venezuelan oil, pro oil production and bringing more revenue back to the country uh, is going to be counterproducing because Venezuela is a sleeping giant for a, in the region. For a long time, Venezuela was a leader of socialist movements. Um, even, and um, Venezuela has always been a hub for foreign threats of the U.S. to to find a place to be safe, like the FARC in Colombia, like uh, which are a big part of the of the war against drugs. Um, we have seen Iran extracting oil, and we also see uh, uh, uranium, which can or could benefit the Iranian uh, nuclear program, and China being a close ally. Russia being a close military ally, they do um, war games together. So Venezuela is a sleeping giant in the region. It has always had a lot of, of leadership when it comes to socialist governments in the region. So I think that reviving Venezuelan oil, oil production and encouraging Venezuela to revive its oil production, hoping that Venezuela will uh, remove itself from these um, totalitarian practices is a very naive policy for the Biden administration to follow. Um, we've got about a minute and a half left here, Eric, but I, I wanted to ask, why is it that, uh, that for instance, Maduro hasn't tried to revitalize the, the oil industry? Is it just not possible under, under his socialist policies? Because it, it seems like uh, it, it would be such a, an easy way to, to generate revenue for the country, even, even just for his regime. I'm curious why he hasn't done it. It has been a combination through the years, uh, especially when Trump imposed very drastic and, uh, and strong sanctions on the oil industry. That gave a huge blow to the oil industry in Venezuela, who, which was already ravaged by the socialist policies. This uh, ended up collapsing 
the production and the um and the revenue from the oil industry that eventually collapsed to the level that it is right now but it you also have to add that venezuela is a very corrupt country and there is a lot of incentives for um let's say when an industry is not producing money anymore they just leave it abandoned and find the industries that can produce more money within the country and to avoid u.s sanctions so that's the current there's no accountability about uh how the country itself makes money but how about but how the politicians and the people in control make the money so that's what we have seen and that's why uh it iran had to come and revitalize or or invest in oil extraction in the in venezuela for this to happen Again, we are talking with Eric Suarez. He's the executive director of Youth and Democracy in the Americas, and he's a contributor for Young Voices. Eric, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they follow your writing? You can follow me on, on X, not Twitter anymore, X, uh, on Instagram. We I have the same handle for both. It's at Eric Suarez and, uh, yep, those two are my main, where you can find me. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Nicholas Thielman back to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor and a current graduate student at George Mason University. And uh, Nicholas, it's good to have you back. For the sake of those meeting you for the first time, take a second and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for having me back, Brian. I'm happy to be here. Um, So I work uh, primarily on agricultural and financial policy uh, through my writing at Young Voices, but I'm also a research associate at Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And uh, like you said, I'm a grad student at George Mason University, um, and I'm also a Frederick Bastiat Fellow at the Mercatus Center. All right. Those are some pretty good credentials, by the way. <laughs> I want to know yeah, what this you. guy has to say based on that. So I'm looking at your article <laughs> on you. Real Clear Markets about the 2023 Farm Bill is ready to come before Congress for renewal here, and yet it has very little to do with saving the family farm. Now, I'll admit, I don't know a whole lot about what the Farm Bill consists of. Could you kind of give me a little bit of background on what this bill is, and and uh, then we can dive into uh, why, why it's not doing much for the actual family farm today? Sure. Um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you like a lot of people, the whole issue was around the farm bill or agricultural policy generally it's not very sexy um it's not going to get a lot of people you know as attention but it should be so the farm bill uh dates all the way back to the 1930s with the agricultural adjustment act that was kind of like the very first farm bill that was passed under franklin roosevelt as part of the new deal and since then it has evolved into this kind of massive bureaucratic special interest morass that we get nowadays where not only are there farm support programs through various crop subsidy and payment programs but we also get now um rolled into it through essentially this congressional log rolling um SNAP benefits that are an integral part of the welfare program that we provide to the poor. And that sort of, it it works in sort of uniting otherwise disparate opponents to, or disparate parties to the farm bill by ensuring that urban and rural constituencies have a stake in its passage. Wow. I mean, I know the lobbyists, uh, they, you know, it's 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 their job to get in there and and find a place at the trough and get as much of the money as they can. But um, 
it's a little bit discouraging to realize, you know, just how far in the back of the bus, so to speak, um, the the actual farms, the people who are actually, you know, uh, producing food uh, come when it comes to this kind of legislation. Yeah, so most of the subsidy payments that are entailed within the Farm Bill's various provisions go to the largest, uh, most financially successful farms or agricultural corporations. These tend to be very uh, well-connected individuals or organizations. And in total, uh, between or at least in terms of like current projections, between 2024 and 2033, these various subsidy programs are going to cost taxpayers about $69 billion. And that's not even wow. factoring in the welfare payments. It's uh, it's really, it's just kind of ridiculous. Um, a lot of what these sort of subsidies function to do is essentially allow incumbent politicians, be they presidents or congressmen, to kind of shake the money tree um, you know, generate campaign contributions and also earn votes from voting blo- agricultural voting blocks in their home states. Um, just to kind of give you like a quick image, the between 2014 and 2020, uh, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Nebraska, both Dakotas and Texas were the top beneficiaries when it came to uh, the subsidy programs and subsidy payments that are entailed within the Farm Bill. And all of those obviously have very large agricultural voting blocks and constituencies. So there is a very strong kind of quid pro quo aspect to a lot of these programs. Okay, so I got to ask this question. And I, I live in agricultural country. I live in southern Idaho, right in, you know, a very, a very farm rich area. But to what extent has corporate farming um, taken over food production here in, in America? It, it seems that the family farm really is kind of on the way out. I see a lot of uh, farmers, for instance, in, in southern Idaho, selling their farmland, oh, turning it into, you know, housing developments and so forth. Um, is, is there a problem? Or is there a danger in in this becoming more centralized and under you know uh, one umbrella? So I mean, definitely the farm bill contributes to the consolidation within agriculture, but there's also a lot of that consolidation that has been driven by technological improvements that can usually only so improvements in productivity of the individual farm or inputs to farming that can only really be captured by larger organizations. But insofar as the farm bill produces that. Um, A lot of farm bill subsidy programs are structured in such a way that essentially larger uh, payments increase with the acreage utilized for a particular crop and farm the, you know, the various subsidy programs tend to benefit overwhelmingly um, corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, and rice. Those are the tend to be the big biggest beneficiaries when it comes to the payment programs. and then, yeah, like I said, I mean, these tend to be calibrated so that larger organizations, larger operations get bigger payments. And then on top of that, um, again, going back to kind of the special interest quality of the farm bill, um, most of the most successful uh, agricultural interest groups, the committees that run them tend to be dominated by these large farms and these large agribusinesses. And those groups, those interest groups, play a very integral role in informing voters about their legislators' policy positions and about the actions they are taking in Congress, informing those voters so that the smaller voters, the you know, the, the not people who have less of a stake. 
uh, in the actual production of these policies um, about what the legislators are doing. And that provides a sort of very important informational flow in the run-up to elections. And so again, we're going back to that kind of quid pro quo aspect where politicians are essentially providing a lot of these uh, subsidies to these large organizations that essentially work to calibrate the kind of information that voters get. And like I said, I mean, with, with the way that uh, these larger organizations get the, the lion's share of the subsidies, that tends to promote consolidation in the sense that essentially it increases their ability to pay. They can buy out their smaller competitors. They can buy out struggling farms. And that over time really does uh, contribute to this consolidation within the industry. And really, this is something we see across all sort of government subsidy programs is continued consolidation of those benefited organizations or businesses. At the risk of sounding like an extremist for asking this, uh, Nicholas, what if the U.S. government were to step back and stop subsidizing um you know the, these farms. I, I mean, the the money that you outline that's being spent, I think is, it's a it's a tiny drop, you know, compared to some of the other spending that's going on. But I'm just wondering, would would oh, it would it so dramatically impact these farms? Would most farms fail without these subsidies? Have we created a kind of dependence? I'm just I'm curious what would happen if we were to separate farm and state. So there is a kind of dependency that these programs uh, create. So there's a concept in public choice economics called the transitional gains trap, where essentially the value of subsidies or various sort of tax carve-outs or other sort of economic privileges get capitalized into, which, sit, which is to say they get added into the value of specialized inputs that contribute to the production of those subsidized uh, outputs, right? So in the case of farms, uh, we've seen increases in the price of uh, cropland, fertilizer, uh, specialized farming equipment. And a lot of that contributes to the erosion of the actual monetary value of these subsidies that over time, farmers re only tend to receive what are called in, in economics, normal returns. Um, so there is a kind of dependency that gets created. However, with what would farming look like without sort of the government's role in its present state. Essentially, we have a nice case study provided by New Zealand, who back in the 80s, because of various budgetary and inflationary issues, completely did away with most of their subsidies. And according to a study that was published by the New Zealand government back in 2017, New Zealand agriculture is thriving. There's been productivity gains. It's actually more efficient than it was back in the 80s. There's pretty much the same amount of people actually employed in it that there were under the subsidized regime, it's just overall, there would not be this sort of collapse in the system that uh, most people fear that would occur. I'm thinking that's a direction we ought to be edging. <laughs> just ever Absolutely. so slightly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I want to see, um, I want to see farms succeed, whether it's the larger ones or even the small family farms. Um, it just seems yeah, exactly. like the more government gets involved, the greater the likelihood that uh, there, there are going to be complications down the road. Not to mention oh, absolutely, on the yeah. taxpayers, but all right, we're, yes. we're talking with Nicholas Thielman. He's a contributor at Young Voices and current graduate student at George Mason University. Um, Nicholas, for people who would like to follow you on social media or just to follow your writing in general, uh, where would you recommend they go? 
Um, so you can find me at Na Fieldman at Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it these days. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I can also you can go also go to my author page at uh, Cato at, at the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives page, and uh, I tend to post all my writing just about everywhere. So just kind of follow me on social media, and you'll find it. Nicholas, thanks for your time today. I hope we talk again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment on moving forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Rachel Johnson to the program. She is a contributor to Young Voices. And Rachel, I'd like you to take just a second to uh, talk a little bit about who you are and what you do. Great. Thank you so much. I am... Um, I work at a, a DC-based think tank, and I'm a contributor at Young Voices, where I focus on issues related to health and health policy. Now, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for the Washington Examiner. The title is "Remove Federal Barriers to a Life-Saving Tool," and I got to admit that hooked me. I was like, "Whoa, what life-saving tool are the Fed standing in the way of?" <laughs> and and I learned a new phrase which I did not know about before, and that is overdose prevention centers. I, look, I, I guess I live in a pretty sheltered area. Um, that's the first that I've heard about them. For people like me who are kind of new to the subject, uh, Rachel, tell us just a little bit about what these centers are. Great. Yeah, I think that a lot of people might have heard overdose prevention centers referred to as safe consumption safe consumption sites or safe injection sites. But the the real term that we like to use now is overdose prevention centers, because I think that it more accurately describes the purpose of these um, organizations. The purpose is not to, you know, condone drug use and say that it's great and emphasize that it's a safe injection site. It's to emphasize that the purpose of these centers is to help uh, prevent people from overdosing and to look at it in a non-judgmental way, but to to know that the purpose is that we're there in case if um, people overdose to, to make sure that they're safe. I mean, I understand people will have some pretty visceral feelings about uh, drugs, but uh, the, yeah. re the reality is, and I think I was just reading just in the last week or so, um, maybe it wasn't this weekend, but the one before, there was something like a couple dozen people died of, uh, I believe it was a fentanyl overdose in San Francisco. This is in one city alone. So there, there are some very powerful drugs that are finding their way into the country. People are choosing to use those drugs. Um, it seems to me that this this is something for which the, a case could be made that that uh, it could be useful. What are the people who are against these these overdose prevention centers saying to justify why we shouldn't have them? Yeah, I think that it's a lot. It's a lot of fear mongering on the part of people who are trying to justify not having overdose prevention centers. You hear a lot of rhetoric of oh, you're condoning drug use. We're going to have drug use all over the streets. When in reality. Overdose prevention centers are associated with less public drug use because you're bringing it inside into a real clinical setting. Um, you, act, I think that there are a lot of arguments associated with um, increases in crime, increases in, in trafficking of drugs, but we actually see the opposite again where uh, when you have an overdose prevention center, you're really treating it in the correct public health response, um, so you don't see as many overdoses, you don't see an increase in crime. You see a decrease in, in death and a decrease in transmission of disease. 
Wow. And I, again, for people who, who don't, um, this is a part of life, I guess, a lot of us just don't encounter. If you're not a medical first responder, if you're not a police officer, you probably wouldn't know a whole lot about this unless maybe you have a family member who struggles with, with drug addiction. But uh, the bottom line is this is a big problem. And uh, it just it was so mm-hmm. curious to hear that federal authorities were saying, nope, 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 I will use the power and the authority of this office to actually stop states and localities from, from having these in place. I can't imagine why, why they would want to do that unless they see it as a turf war or something like that. Yeah, really, what's standing in place right now is an, an outdated law. It's uh, 21 USC Section 856. It's colloquially known as the Crack House Statute, which is um, kind of the purpose of the law was to make sure that there were not these crack houses. Um, so it, it's the law that prohibits uh, you from running a premises where people are knowingly consuming illicit substances. It makes sense that they're trying to prevent these crack houses, but this law actually went into place before the first ever overdose prevention center opened up over in Europe. So obviously it wasn't created with these medical treatment facilities in mind. It was created with this um, these crack houses that they were trying to clamp down on. So I think that we really need to uh, bring this up to people's attention and have the federal government kind of reconsider the the negative, possibly unintended consequences of this this really outdated um, statute that's standing in the way. You're going to see more and more states start to open up overdose prevention centers in defiance of this federal law. What kind of inspired me to write this article is there are two currently operating in New York City. They've been locally sanctioned, but there is a um, the the U.S. Uh, prosecutor for the area is kind of threatening to clamp down because he sees the crack house statute as being um, in effect to prohibit these overdose prevention centers from operating in New York, even though that was not the purpose of the law. So I think that as you see more and more states, even Minnesota just allocated uh, funding to go toward opening overdose prevention centers, you're going to see more people kind of operating locally in defiance. You're going to see more of a push to kind of reexamine that law and, and possibly update and change it. I have to admit, I had no idea that the numbers were as high as they were in terms of uh, the number of Americans that died of drug overdose in 2022. Um, you know, 110,000 Americans. That absolutely dwarfs the number of people killed in traffic accidents, uh, killed by gunshots. I mean, that I don't, I don't even think combined those those two causes of death would come close to to the drug overdose deaths. So I, I can see a place where these these overdose uh, prevention centers could help to bring those numbers down i'm just i'm just trying to understand why why politicians would would stand in the way of something like this yeah i am too i know that we have evidence that they are helping to bring these numbers down the two operating in new york city since they opened in just late november of of 2021 have reversed and intervened in over a thousand overdoses and i think that sometimes it's hard we get lost in the numbers but you really need to think of the human the human impact that that's a thousand people who would have likely been dead had there not been these overdose prevention centers um and it's really giving these people another chance to to turn toward recovery so you had mentioned that uh, with with all these different centers around the world about 200 of them in 14 different countries i'm curious what the uh 
what has been the impact in other countries? I'm sure there are some who've been doing this longer. Portugal comes to mind, although I don't know for certain that they have uh, these specific types of overdose centers, but I know in 2005, they decriminalized virtually every drug and started treating it as a public health problem rather than a criminal problem. Can, can we draw anything from the experience that other countries are having in regards to, to this kind of a situation? Yes, absolutely. I love that you say that they're they're treating this as the public health problem that it is rather than the criminal problem, which I think is the way that a lot of uh, people in this country and a lot of the politicians look at the overdose problem. I think that we do have a lot to learn um, from taking this more harm reduction public health approach. I know you mentioned Portugal. I'd have to look at the exact statistics on how many or if even they have overdose prevention centers there. But I think overall, it's really important to use overdose prevention centers as a tool, but overall shift our approach away from a criminal justice issue to more of a public health issue. Because either way, no matter how hard you know we clamp down on on drug use, people are using it and they're oftentimes overdosing. I think especially the fentanyl crisis that you referenced comes to mind. I know a lot of people, they have kids out in college who are just kind of recreationally, maybe they they take one, one pill that they've purchased um, illicitly and there's fentanyl in it, so it um, causes them to overdose. But I think as we shift what drug users look like in our mind, this could be someone's daughter that they had no idea of a previous use that as these contaminants get into the supply more and more we need to really think this could be anyone who could get access to this and we need to ensure that they have tools to help them not overdose if they take it so i think that that looks like making sure that there's access to test strips making sure that we have overdose prevention centers and just having a more public health approach overall I want to bounce a, a statistic off you. We've got a little over a minute and a half here, but um, Rachel, I have heard that uh, um, when there's prohibition and even when there isn't prohibition, you know, when the before the war on drugs and during the war on drugs, the percentage of people who are prone to abuse substances stays right around 3%. And I've heard that that's actually very, very constant. It, it rarely goes above that. Um, have you encountered anything similar in your studies? Yeah, I I think that that is um, what we see a lot with with addiction. You're often prone to it. So I think that, you know, people are going to find a way to access what they want to access. So as we look at it more as a public health issue, helping people who really have, you know, substance use disorder or have opioid use disorder, um, looking at that as a health issue that they have rather than, um, kind of demonizing them for for being an addict or being a drug user, looking at it as you know a health problem that they struggle with. I appreciate your take on this. Again, we're talking with Rachel Johnson. She is a Young Voices contributor and also works at a Washington D.C. think tank where she focuses on issues related to health care. Rachel, for people who want to follow you either on social media or follow your writing, where can they best find you? Yeah, with a common name like Johnson, um, my Twitter handle is a little complicated. I'll give that to you. So it's just Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L underscore Johnson. But the the first O is going to be an O and the second O is going to be a zero. Um, so you can find me on Twitter there and I you know look forward to further conversations. 